Well, hey, welcome. My name is Ethan, one of the pastors here. If this is your first time tuning in, glad you are. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email. Let us know you're watching, tuning in. If you got a Bible with you or can find one close by, go to Isaiah chapter 6 because that's where we're going to be today. We are closing out a series that we have been going through together called Dangerous Prayers. And so if you've been with us, you've seen these dangerous prayers. We've been challenging us not to just pray more, not to just pray better or even just differently, but to pray dangerously, to hop off the merry-go-round and jump into the roller coaster, the adventure, the crazy, incredible surrender of prayer. And what it would look like to ask God for dangerous prayers like, search me, your will be done, bless me, forgive us, and give me wisdom. This week, we're going to look at another dangerous prayer, and it is a dangerous prayer that you might look at and go, wow, that is dangerous, send me. And you might think it's dangerous because you think God might send you to a place you don't want to go. Like you might have to go to Calcutta and become the next Mother Teresa or somehow this sermon is the sermon that's going to guilt trip you into going to a short-term mission trip or cause you to want to give money somehow or you need to volunteer more at the church or you're going to hear this as a guilt trip sermon and you're like, man, maybe I've heard sermons like this before. I'm telling you, please hear me. This is a dangerous prayer, not because God's going to send you somewhere uncomfortable. He might, but this is a way more dangerous prayer because he wants you to see something way more uncomfortable. He wants you to witness something way more uncomfortable. So I'd love for just a minute, if you would just pray with me where you're at, because Lord, right now, I want to say what you want me to say. God, we want to encounter you. We want to see you for who you really are. Lord, I feel so unworthy about what we're about to talk about. And yet, God, I'm asking that you would use me. Help me not get in the way of this. And God, I pray that you would send us wherever you see fit. Pray this by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Isaiah 6 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Can we agree on something? This is a little intense. Okay, this is a little far out. Like, let's be honest, this is why some of us, you're like, this is exactly why I don't read the Bible, because I'm not sure what I think about all that. That seems far out distance. And for some of us, maybe you're like, this is exactly why I read the Bible. Wherever you find yourself, I would beg you for a few moments, over these next few moments, would you please consider Can we not just consider this for a moment? Can we imagine this together? Imagine this scene for a moment together. It starts off in the year that King Uzziah died. That's interesting, right? You you might think, man, it's easy to go over that. Why is that some random note found in scripture? Like it seems like a pointless detail, a text filler or something like that. But this detail that King Uzziah died is very important. And I think 
it's because of King Uzziah's story. You can find it in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah was in office for 52 years. He was the longest king to be in office up until this point in Judah's history. And he was king of Judah at 16 years old. He came into office. At 16, I was struggling to finish algebra, and this, this kid's leading a nation. He's king over this nation. He sought the Lord and was successful. He was known throughout the ancient world for his power and his might, and he brought stability and flourishing into his kingdom. Jobs were plentiful. Money was flowing. The military was highly equipped and highly trained. He modernized warfare with inventing new kinds of weapons of war. And even in the greatness and the goodness of his leadership, and the prosperity of the kingdom, King Uzziah takes a fall towards the end of his life. He takes a moral failure, a spiritual scandal, and Uzziah, scripture says, became a very powerful, but his power led to pride, and pride was his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. He didn't know how to wield his power. And so one day he goes into the temple to pray. And just think, he's a, he's a king. He's been a king for 52 years. He goes into the temple to pray, and he kind of tips his hat off to God, and he realizes all the success, the prosperity, the rule that he has, and he's thinking to himself, he does not need God. He's figured it out. He's got it. God, you just sit back. I, I, I'll handle this place. I got it. 81 priests, go read it, Second Chronicles 26, 81 priests come into the temple with him. They follow him in there, and they told Uzziah, they said, you have to leave right now. You have to leave right now because you are coming into God's temple thinking that you're good. And he's, they're like, you have to get out of here right now. I think they were watching out for his sake and for their sake. They, they cared too much about this God. And do you know what happened? Uzziah became enraged. He says, do you know who I am? Do you know what I do? I go where I please. I do what I will. I command you. I listen to no one. I am the king. And it was at that moment that leprosy starts forming on his forehead. And he suffers with leprosy the rest of his life and dies in disgrace, alone in pain and locked up in a separate house, removed completely from society. Now, Uzziah, believe it or not, regardless of that mistake, he, uh, he was actually one of the best kings of Judah. He was one of the best kings in comparison to all of Judah's kings. He was one of the greats. He was a, the best of men, but at best, he was still a man, right? After Uzziah died, the kingdom was an upheaval. The world was upside down. Panic was everywhere. The king is dead. And while everyone was paranoid, they were looking down here. Isaiah, in that moment, he looks up. He looks up. Can I, can I talk to you for a minute? Like, I don't know if there's uh, things I've ever regretted when I look up. You know what I mean? Like, if you think about it, like, look at a sunset over the beach. Have you ever seen that? When you look up at that, it, it gives you this feeling of like, man, that is so beautiful. That is so spectacular. And that, that feels so real, even though that is so far out there. Even though I can't touch it, I can't put anything to it, but it is magnificent. When I look up at that sunset, 
I, I've never regretted, I went to New Mexico, I never regretted for a minute any chance we got to look at the stars out there, man. The stars in New Mexico, as we sat underneath that sky, the stars are thousands upon thousands. And you sit there and you sit there in wonder. You sit there in awe. You can't stop but staring at it. But you know what I have found? I have found this, that I do regret. I find myself often regretting when I'm looking down. When I'm scrolling through social media or when I'm looking at my news feed or somehow when I'm looking at the next YouTube channel, next YouTube video, that sometimes I can get so focused on what's going on down here and I forget what's going on up there. Or maybe I've never seen what's going on up there, even though it's so far out there. That doesn't make it any less real. The psalmist says, I look, I lift my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven. Colossians 3 says this, set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. Prayer, when we pray for God to send us, he first wants us to see. He wants us to see God in his throne room. When we see God in his throne room, all of a sudden we see that Uzziah's dead, but God is alive and he's always been alive. He was alive when Uzziah was born. He was alive when Uzziah died. He was alive when the world was created. He was alive when Rome became the world's superpower. He was alive when Napoleon was having his victories. When Nietzsche claimed God is dead in 1882, he was alive. And during the horrors of World War I and the horrors of World War II, God was alive. When the world had a virus that took over and shut down the world, God was alive and he will always be alive. He will outlive every president. He will outlive every leader. He will outlive every nation and he will outlive every jellyfish, elephant, giant tortoise you could imagine and every human being. God is alive. When we look on his throne, we see that. But when we look on his throne, we not only see a God who's alive, but we see a God who is above all. He is a God who is high and exalted, superior than all things, larger than any skyscraper, more valuable than any diamond. He has infinite value. He's better than any food, hobby, relationships, or sex you've had. He's more intelligent than Einstein, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and all of rocket science combined. He's more beautiful and breathtaking than any sunset or starry night that you've seen. And he is more terrifying than the depths of the ocean, the biggest spider you've ever seen, or the highest bungee jump you could ever imagine. God is above all. But not only that, God has authority. He has all authority. He sits on a throne. Uzziah sat on a beanbag chair compared to the God who sits on the throne. And the only reason that I can take a breath and you can take a breath is because we have a God who allows it. This is a God that when I step into his presence, I don't play games with him. This is a God that when Isaiah stepped into his presence, he doesn't just mouth off to God. Like, I got a few things I want to tell you, God. No, he comes in and he trembles before God. He is on his face before this God. Isaiah 66, 1 says that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God rules this earth and he's not sweating. He's not panicked. He rules with his feet up. 
Nothing beats him and nothing compares to him. God is above all. He is alive. He has all authority, but he is holy. Probably the best word we could figure out is holy. And this is where language pushes its limits. This is where the boundaries of your imagination are futile because the words break down to describe the indescribable God. Holy, 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 holy is where we get the root word to be cut off to be separate from, to be set apart from. And these spiritual beings that have six wings, they're using two to cover their face, two to fly, and two to cover their feet. And they're screaming at each other, holy, holy, holy. How do I know they're not like Cupid? They are not anything like Cupid. They're not like some fat, cute little man. When they scream, holy, 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 the whole place is shook. The whole place is filled with smoke. And yet they're screaming it at each other. Why are they shouting this at each other? I think because their minds are being blown when they experience the presence of this God. Their minds are being blown. There's something fresh and new every time when I come into the presence of God. And the way that I explain his wonder, his amazement, his majesty, his beauty is I go holy, holy. Holy, and if you look in Revelation 4, you would see that the lyrics of the song have not changed, but the song is a completely new song. It's holy, holy, holy. Every time I step into the presence of God, I'll continue to get my ever-expanding understanding of Him. I'll catch a new glimpse of His glory because His glory is endless. It fills the earth. It fills the earth. So unless I've traveled to every square inch of this earth, this ball of dirt that I live on, I haven't even gotten close to seeing a totality vision of who he is and his glory. Do you know why this is so important, why followers of Jesus worship together? It's so important why we worship together because we look at each other and we go, man, God, did you see that? Did you see that God? He's incredible. He's bigger than I've imagined. Because I'll tell you what, there's times I come in on Sundays. There's times after a long week that, man, I'm like, I'm not sure what I think about God right now. It's been so hard. He seems so far out. He seems so distant. And yet when I see other people worshiping and they're going, man, that God's incredible. What it does in me, it makes me go, oh yeah, that's right. This is, he's real. He's good. He's holy. He's incredible. We need each other. And God is not some needy, insecure, emotional person that needs your worship. But if you come into his presence, worship is the natural response. How in the world do we even describe the God who sits on his throne? We can't. Do you know God had trouble describing himself to you and to me? God was asked one time, who are you? God said, I am who I am. Can I give you a translation? God is me and I am God. Like he is 1000% unique. He's on a category of his own, a class of his own. He is unmatched and distinct above everything else. So much so that these sinless creatures who are screaming, holy, 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 are covering themselves. They can't even look at him. He's that set apart and different. And if these are sinless spiritual beings, how much more 
How much more if you and I come into his presence are going to tremble before him. We're going to shudder before him. Like, can you imagine yourself in Isaiah's shoes for just a moment? Like, seriously, imagine it. I want to give you just a ridiculous picture for a minute, okay? So I brought Plato. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, man, how, how in the world do we try and describe this incredible God? Can you just picture for a minute, okay, give me, give me just a second as we kind of create. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to create a Plato man, okay? And, and this Plato man, okay, here we go. He's, he's, man, he's got a big head, okay? A very big head. I didn't mean to do it like that. But, but here's, here's our little Plato guy, okay? This is our Plato guy. And could you imagine, just for a minute, okay, 30 seconds ago, this little Plato man did not exist. But I created him, and all of a sudden I, like, imagine for a minute, I know this is ridiculous, just imagine that I could, like, breathe life into him. Okay? I know. <laughs> and I just breathe life into this little Plato guy. And and all of a sudden I'm like, hey Plato man, here's what we're gonna do. I, I created you and I, I have a plan for you. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell Plato land, I want you to tell Plato world all about me. And I want to have a relationship with you. And and man, I cannot wait to see what you're going to do and what I'm going to do in and through you. And imagine, as ridiculous as this is, okay, that this little Plato guy comes to me and, and he's listening to me and he's just like, you know what, forget you. Could, could you imagine that? Like, forget you. I don't need you. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. I want to lead and rule Plato land by myself. I don't need you. Do you know what I could do in that minute to him? I could just, you know, crush him and go, you know, I'm going to create a new Plato man. One that listens to me, one that abides to me. Do you know, God, when you step in the presence of God, that is nowhere near as dangerous as a Plato man stepping into my presence. Like, that is so dangerous to come into the presence of God. This Plato man, and before I could go, man, this Plato man has rights. He doesn't have rights. I just created him. The only rights he would have is if I gave him rights. And before anybody could blink an eye, I would, I could crush them. There would be no eyes to blink. There would be no rights to be had. When you realize the presence of God that we step into all of a sudden, Isaiah did, and he's like, woe is me. I'm as fragile as the Plato man. God could crush me. What's he say? I'm ruined. I could be crushed in a moment. I could be destroyed in a moment, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty, this is a big deal. Isaiah hasn't been crushed. He's in the presence of a God who could so easily crush him. And yet God hasn't. He's in his presence, but he realizes there's something wrong. What, what's this like unclean lips thing? 
Is that he said too many curse words on earth or something? No, he doesn't live among people that just keep cursing, maybe, but that's not the point. Jesus gives us some clarity on this, that out of the mouth comes from what's in the heart. That Isaiah, his biggest issue is not his words, he's got a heart issue, he's got a heart problem. A.W. Tozer says this, that such an experience to be in God's presence can be nothing but emotionally violent for those who have hearts that are unclean. Isaiah, in God's presence, he sees himself. Prayer is to show me my sinful heart in light of your holiness. When we see God in light of our holiness, it brings us low. It brings us low. If Isaiah, who is a prophet, by the way, if he, the prophet, ain't doing well, I promise you that you and I are in hot water. I like to fancy myself a ping pong player, okay? I fancy myself a ping pong player and I play with, uh, during the holidays with my family a lot of times and I've been crowned champion of our house several different times, okay? But if I were to play ping pong with Ma Long, who's been the champion, the number one champion of pink table tennis since 2015. If I were to play ping pong with him, I wouldn't. Why? Because I'm nothing compared to him. I wouldn't even dare to bring a paddle. Are you kidding me? I would never play him. Because he's incredible. He's, he's in a totally different universe than I'm in. I, I compare nothing to his ability to play ping pong and for me to step into the presence of God and go, I'm good. It makes no sense. If you show me a person who has pride, I'll show you a person who's never been in the throne room of God. Because the minute that I think that I'm okay, I've shrunk and reduced God to some manageable level that I can try and make sense of him to, that I'm not too bad and compared to others, I'm pretty good and I'm doing okay, but I hate to burst your bubble. You are not here because you chose to be here. You did not create yourself. You did not make yourself. You are here because Yahweh, the Holy Lord who sits on his throne, wanted you here. And God put you here, and you have an obligation to consider his purpose for your life. And it is reckless to think that you popped up into this universe that you didn't even create, and that you can somehow be the center of it. It is reckless to think you can be the center of it and not suffer any consequences. To think anything else sounds completely irrational to me because you and I were made by someone. We were made for someone. We were made to be wholeheartedly devoted to that someone. And right now, maybe you need to stop playing games with God. You need to stop playing games with God. You need to confess your sin and you need to weep before him. You need to turn from your evil ways and trust in Jesus' grace and his mercy. This is not a God that you come in playing games with, and I'm not trying to be insensitive right now in this moment, but if a doctor were to come to you at your house and said, we did the scans, you need a new heart and you need it right now. You need it right now. You're not gonna go, oh man, I, you, you seem a little insensitive. 
Uh, you seem a little controlling. Uh, like, come on, right? You, you'd be like, no, let's, let's figure this out. He's stating a matter of a fact. You're not gonna be offended by that. When Job, another guy who stepped in his presence, when Job stepped into his presence, he said this, my, I, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Seeing God shows me how dreadful of a state that I'm in. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. The gospel means there's good news, folks. Isaiah goes on, the story happens, and then one of the seraphim, the spiritual being, flew to me, Isaiah, with a live coal in its hand, which he had taken from tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See that this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice something. Notice something. God doesn't crush the Plato man. God doesn't destroy the Plato man. It, he, does, he, he burns Isaiah's lips. He burns his lips, but God does not want to destroy unholy people. He wants to save them. He wants to save them. But if an unholy person comes into the presence of, of God with a prideful, puffed out chest, if they come into the presence of God, his holiness, his radiance will burn them. If you look at the sun, there's, there's going to be a total eclipse in Ohio, April 8th this year. And, and they're saying, don't look directly at the sun. Why? Because if you look directly at the sun, it will ruin your vision, possibly permanently. It will have long-term effects on your eyes. The radiance, the rays, and the brightness of the sun will burn your eyes and destroy your retina. The radiance of God's holiness will burn up unholiness around him. How in, in the world do unholy people come into the presence of a holy God in the throne room of God? They need what, what Isaiah says is atonement. They need to be covered. That's what atonement means. It means covered. How in the world does sin get covered? Well, to stand in the holiness of God without being destroyed, somehow my, my sin needs to be, I need to be covered with the holiness of God. I need to be covered with it. The Jews had this practice that was pretty intense because God set it up to deal with the intensity of their sin. And the priest would perform an animal sacrifice at the altar. And what they would do is they'd perform the animal sacrifice. They'd let the blood spill out all over the altar and cover the altar. And as the blood covered the altar, it was an act. It was a symbol. It was a ritual to show that God... They were covered by the blood of this sinless lamb. They were co covered by the blood of the, this lamb. And so they could step into the presence of God. But do you know what they would do then? They'd take that blood at that, that altar from that lamb and they'd 
collected for a minute. And what they'd do is they'd go around, the priest would go around the temple, and he'd sprinkle it around the temple in different places. Why? Because what they realized was this, not only do I have unholiness in me, not only do I have sin in me, but sin has affected, my sin has affected and infected everything around me. It's touched everything. Like it's messed up a lot of different things. And so they take that blood and sprinkle it. Do you know to come into the presence of God you need to be covered, but you need to be purified. There's a cleaning that takes place. A substitute must be made. Blood must be spilled for someone to be covered in the presence of God. And do you know what happened? That holy God on his throne became a holy lamb. He became a holy lamb and he went to the altar of the cross for you and for me. And for those of us that put our trust, we put our hope in Jesus. His blood covers us. His blood covers us. He was burned for us so that we could be covered with him by his blood. His blood sets us apart. It sets us apart by the blood of Jesus for Jesus Jesus is the only way that I can be covered. Jesus is the only way that I could even begin to imagine to come into the throne room of God with boldness. It's not my giving numbers, my service projects, my good deeds. Forget about it. It's only Jesus. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, we have boldness to enter the most holy place, the throne room of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way open through us, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts, not a sinful heart anymore, but a sincere heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Part of the process of prayer is coming before the holy God and allowing his holiness to somehow purify me. That, that coal touched Isaiah's lips, but it didn't just touch his lips, it transformed his life. That coal needed to burn some things off of him. It needed to singe some things off of him. And Isaiah, Isaiah needs the, to take the burn from God all the way on his lips into his heart because holiness is healthiness. And not only is God trying to make his, his lips holy, not only is he trying to make his heart holy, he's trying to make all of him healthy. First Peter says, be holy because I am holy. That Jesus, when I say yes to Jesus, he says, you're holy. I've covered you with my blood. Now be holy. I, I've set you apart with my blood. Now be set apart. Live set apart. God loves you too much to leave you where you're at. He wants to heal you. And by the blood of Jesus, he covers you, but he wants to clean you. He wants you to take the, his blood and sprinkle it over all of my thoughts. So that way when, when the enemy tries to plant heads, lies into my head, and he's like, Ethan, I can't believe you would do that. I can't believe you're a pastor. I can't believe all this, right? I go, no, 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 no. You need to talk to Jesus. 
because Jesus is the one who covers me. And I take those, this blood of Jesus and I sprinkle it into my heart, into my thoughts, into my motives, into my hobbies, into my attitudes, into my actions all over my life. And what the process of that does is God begins to purify me. And as he's purifying me, he's preparing me. It's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Prayer is first a vision. It's first a vision. I need to see God. Then it's a transformation. And then all of a sudden, it becomes this mission that God wants me to see him. He wants me to have a vision to be transformed to then go on mission because we skipped over something that's very important. Notice what Isaiah says after he realizes that he's in this bind, after he realizes he's in a jam and a pickle with God, he says this, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. His mind went to the same people that had the same predicament that he was in. That means this, prayer is to ask God, show me the hopeless people among me. Show me the hopeless people among me. I remember I was trying to get money to buy an engagement ring for my wife. And so I was working in a valet in, in my undergrad at a country club. And as I was working this valet, I remember uh, the guy who worked with me oftentimes, his name, uh, he, he was a good dude. His name was JT, right? We called him JT around there. JT and I, I love JT. He, he, was, he was just so much fun, right? And I remember we'd talk, and, and he was telling me stuff uh, about him and his girlfriend. And um, he's like, man, it's just, relationships are so hard, man, right? He's a little bit younger than me, but we were about the same age. And I'm like, yeah, I know, man. Relationships are hard. And, and he's like, yeah, but he's like, your relationship, man, dude, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what you're thinking. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he goes, I don't know what you're thinking, man. You're going to get married? Like, are you sure you want to do that? That's a big deal. <laughs> and I kind of, I'm like, yeah, I know it's a big deal. He's like, no, 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 it's a big deal. Like, that's a, are you sure? I'm like, JT, honestly, I think it's a really big deal. In fact, I think it's such a big deal and I, I just said it, like, I just said, I think it's the second biggest decision that I'll ever have to make in my life. And, and he looked at me for a second. He's like, second biggest decision? What do you mean? And, and I kind of looked at him. And I'm like, oh, uh, you don't want to know. <laughs> and, and you know when you tell somebody they don't want to know, they want to know, right? And I didn't mean to do it like that, but he, he's like, no, no, tell me. I'm like, no, trust me, JT, you don't want to know. Like, it's, it's not that big of a deal. He's like, no, come on, man, stop it. Like, just tell me. What's up? And I said, the first biggest decision I ever had to make was to say yes to Jesus, right? And I'm telling you, he did exactly what your eyes are probably doing. He did, ah, like, are you, are you serious? You got me, man. Like, really? And I, I just kind of looked at him. I said, no, 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 no. Just, just hear me out, man. I said, I was working on an orchard after I graduated high school. I wasn't sure what I was doing with my life. I was kind of hopeless. I was aimless. I grew up in church, but I was about ready to, to just throw out the whole thing because I felt like I had done so much for God, but God had never paid me back. 
I had so much pride towards God, and then all of a sudden on that orchard over the course of a year and a half, I came into the presence of God, and I saw God. And I saw him in that orchard. And I said, JT, it changed me, man. Like, it changed me. I, I just said, all right, God, I'm, I'm giving my whole life to you. And for me, that looked like going into ministry. That doesn't look like full-time, like pastorally, right? Doesn't look like that for everybody. But when you stand in the presence of God, all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm, I'm gonna live completely different. I, I wanna give anything that I can back to this holy, incredible God. I live as a living sacrifice. And I wish I could say JT at that moment just gave his life to the Lord and like revival broke out and the whole country club was saved. And it didn't, didn't happen like that. It didn't happen like that. In fact, a car came and we, we handled the car and got back there and just started talking about something else. And yet Jesus, when he describes people, God, the throne room God, he says he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, hopeless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Am I praying? Am I praying that God would send out laborers? When I pray that prayer, it's a dangerous prayer because I'm praying, God, would you send me? Would you send me? And if I pray that prayer, what I'm doing is I'm coming to his presence, bowing before him, and what he's gonna do is he's gonna bless me to be a blessing. If I come into his presence, I need to bow first and all of a sudden he might say, you know what, I'm going to use you. If I come in his presence and bow before God, he will create a burden in you. And all of a sudden I'll start to see people for who they are, hopeless and helpless. And I won't see them as broken because if I see them as broken, I'll feel the need to fix them. If I see people as broken, I'll, I'll, John Maxwell says this, if I see the people as broken, I'll want to fix them. If I see people as hurt, I'll want to help them. But if I see people as valuable, as valuable sheep that belong to Jesus, I want to serve my entire life and sacrifice my entire life to point them to the one who can save them. That I will all of a sudden look at the people who I live among can I ask you, who are the people you live among? Maybe it's your family that don't know the hope, the covering. They don't know about a God who's on a holy throne, who loves them. And yet if they came into their presence right now, it would be too much. Are they friends? Are they coworkers? Maybe it's not just individuals, maybe it's groups of people. Maybe there's addicts in our community that you just, your heart breaks for them. It's burdened for them because you've been broken before God. Kids without homes that need to know the home of God. They need to experience real homes of families. Teenagers that don't know who they are. That are looking to all these other places to find meaning, to find satisfaction, to find love. And you're like, no, 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 there's a God who loves you. It's God who bleeds for you. Isaiah's response is this. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. 
Isaiah in this moment isn't coerced into anything. He doesn't listen to a motivational talk, a TED talk by an angel, like, all right, you need to get out and go do it, right? Like he doesn't listen to that. Nothing like that. He's not manipulated. He isn't even guilted by God. It's not like God's looking at him and going, who shall we send? Isaiah, what about you? Right? Like, it's not like a sarcastic kind of guilt trip from God. God's not even talking to him. Do you see this? He says, who would go for us? He's talking to like his divine throne room. And Isaiah, because he's been clean, he's been covered by God. All of a sudden, he has the boldness to go, Lord, Lord, send me. Send me because my heart, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. Send me because I, I'm surrendering my heart to you. I'm sacrificing my life for you. And I'm burdened. My heart is burdened all of a sudden. Send me with a surrendered and burdened heart. Surrender to the Lord. Burden for people. The natural response in seeing God surrendering is you're surrendering your heart, sacrificing your life to be sent wherever he sees fit. That's what's called worship. You don't need a bucket list now. I don't need a bucket list now. My life is a living sacrifice. My dreams, my plans, my hopes, my talents, my resources, my time. I got eternity to be with God. I don't think I'm going to get bored with that, but right now, I'm sacrificing my life because he sacrificed his life for me. And you're like, man, Ethan, that sounds great for you, right? You're a pastor. And I'll, I'll just tell you, man, I'm an ordinary dude, <laughs> as ordinary as they come. There's nothing special about me. In fact, God doesn't call special people. He calls surrendered people. He doesn't call super skilled people. He calls sinful people. And he makes the sinful people clean and covered. And he sends them. This is not a, a for, for some of us, if, if you've walked in and you've seen him, this is a call for all of us. Jesus, did you know he quoted this very passage from Isaiah? Isaiah 6, he says, He has blinded their hearts and hardened, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they cannot see nor understand. Here we go. Nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said, This is because he saw Jesus' glory. He saw the throne room of God and he spoke about him. Yet at the same time, Many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear, they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. After leaving the throne room, Isaiah goes out, and do you know the results? It has a reverse effect. It doesn't soften people's hearts towards God. Even though he's burdened and surrendered towards God, it doesn't soften. In, in fact, it, it hardens their hearts. Legend has it that Isaiah was murdered by being sawn in two. Did you know that the words of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, often can have the same reverse effect? We serve a king who was crucified Jesus assumes that when you're sent, you're going to need some peace. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
my motivation isn't somehow the results that everybody comes to know the Lord or that, that I just do some radical, crazy, cool things for God, which would be incredible, and I hope that. But my motivation is not the results that I see. My motivation is the room that I've stood in. That's the room that I've stood in. I don't do this for human praise, right? It's easy to get caught in what people say, but I do this for the praise of God. Here I am, Lord. Send me. This is a dangerous prayer because we have a dangerous God. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been in the throne room? Have you ever been in the throne room? Have you stood in the throne room? Could you imagine for just a minute being Isaiah right now or right beside Isaiah? I think, I think you drop to your knees. I think you drop to your knees in this moment and you wouldn't get up too quick. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You let God break you. You let God break you. When you step into his presence, let God break you. And then he'll lift you. Don't get up too quick. Can I ask you, as you're sitting there for a moment, if you just where you're at, I'd encourage you, maybe get on your knees, stand before, kneel before, come into the presence of and see this Lord. And when you see him, I have a question. Have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? Have you said yes? You can say yes to Jesus right now in this moment. You can turn from your evil ways. You can trust in his goodness and his grace as he's breaking you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if God burdens you for somebody for individuals by name, because there's people in this world that think God is someone to be analyzed, ignored, mocked, dismissed, or somebody to be afraid of. And God wants to use me and you. Can you imagine? <laughs> he doesn't need us, he, he lets us go, here I am, send me. And you know what? Often the biggest thing that God will equip you with, you might feel ill-prepared. You might, and that's okay. The biggest thing God equips you with is a story oftentimes. A story when you are in the presence of the throne room. He'll, he'll equip you with your story and he'll send you with it. You know, we have a young man from our campus this weekend getting baptized. He's getting baptized and I am so proud of him. His faith, man, it challenges me. I'm sure if you were to be with him for a minute, it challenged you. This is a young man in our campus that has been in the throne room of God and God has given him a story that quite honestly, I don't think he would choose. I don't think he'd choose it but it's one he carries. And he has a, he carries it with an inner quietness, a humble strength, but I believe it's a holy burden of a surrendered heart towards God. God's sent him with a story. He sent you and I with a story. And so Father, I just pray, pray for those watching right now
It is incredible that we can call you Father because the blood of Jesus has covered us. God, I pray for those who have never experienced that, never known that, never seen this before, God, that they turn and they trust you in this moment. God, I pray for those who have stepped back into your throne room, they're seeing you. God, would you help us to live sent? Would you help us to pray dangerously, pray this dangerous prayer? God, send me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.